New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Michael Maslansky. He's the CEO of Maslansky and Partners and the author of The Language of Trust, Selling Ideas in a World of Skeptics. Part political strategist, part behavioral scientist, and part expert communicator, Michael helps clients understand how their audiences think and what language will change attitudes and impact behavior. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. We tell children when they act out to use their words. And despite this, despite using our words all of our lives, at the heart of a lot of business dysfunction is a broken system of communication. And in fact, you've built a business around the power of language and communication. And your tagline is, it's not what you say, it's what they hear. So what does that mean? And why don't they hear the message that we think our words are saying? Well, I think you're you're right. We spend so much of our lives trying to say something that we have completely clear in our own heads. And yet when we communicate it to our audience, whether it's a, a child, our friend, a spouse, or in a business context, they don't get the message that we're sending. And there are a whole host of, of reasons why there's a gap between what we say and what people hear. It is the fact that often the people that we're talking to, they look at the world in a different way. They have a different different life experience. They have different attitudes and beliefs. They have different cognitive biases when it comes to how we interpret information. And, and all of those things create filters between the message that we're sending and what it is that they interpret. And so what we focus on is trying to understand what are those, what are those filters, what are the biases, and then how can you become a more effective communicator to, to overcome them? Interesting. So in some ways, it's both a big picture problem and a granular word choice problem. It sounds like it's a bit of both. Absolutely. It is it is so much of both. It is the it is understanding how to how to frame a message in order to appeal to an audience or even to get somebody to listen. Uh, it is avoiding coded language, which is fraught with meaning that maybe you don't intend, but you use the word that's most familiar to you, even if it might not be familiar or attractive to the other person. But it's the whole context all the way down to the individual word and phrase. Oh, so interesting. So it's interesting you said avoid coded language, because I would almost think <laughs> understand your audience and tap into their coded language. And then you're in the inner track there. Yes, that's totally right. If you have already taken the time to understand it, what, what ah. often happens is that you speak in your own coded language. You know, you've got your own lexicon at companies. You know, it's amazing what happens inside an organization. Inside a <laughs> you mean all the acronyms? Right? <laughs> right. And it's and it's the acronyms, but it, it's actually what we find over and over again is how much deeper it goes, that there is literally a whole language that you speak that is company specific. It is industry specific. It may be, you know, generationally specific, even within that, and that you go out and you assume that other people are going to understand it. And it requires a whole level of translation that, that people don't anticipate. So, so the coded language is often embedded in where people start 
If you can get to the point that you understand which coded language will work with the audience that you're trying to reach, then you're going to be super successful. But but we often find, you know, in politics where like-minded people tend to talk to like-minded people, there it's all about kind of aligning with that coded language often. But if you want to expand outside of your core, you may want to ditch it. Yes. Yep. Ah, fascinating. So do you have consistent problems, like patterns that you see. Now, it sounded like the coded language, you know, going company specific, industry specific, generation specific, that sounds like one, but are there other, you know, oh, well, here we are running into this problem again, and you see yes. it, it's familiar. What yeah. would you say are the top three? So I, I think the first most important is is being plain spoken, as we talk about, is understanding the language that you're using and asking yourself whether or not the audience that you're trying to reach is going to understand that same language in the same way and trying okay. to trying to kind of break that down. The second thing that that we see the most, and it really gets, it, it's at the mindset level before it even gets to the language, to what language you use, is, is understanding, you know, where your audience is on the topic that you're trying to communicate with them about. And so, so often we believe that our audience assumes the same things or has the same beliefs. You know, it's like uh, when when you've got a when you're a big company and you're talking to customers and you say that you know we use our scale for good and that assumes that so many things right, right? there. Oh wow, yeah. <laughs> and yet, yet over and over again, you will hear big companies talk about that. But it's it for for most consumers today, it's tapping into kind of a cultural narrative that big corporations are are fundamentally bad. Right. So why are you talking about scale? Even if it's true, even if it's if that's the point that you want to make, if you understand that your audience doesn't really doesn't value big corporations for their own sake, you're going to talk about that point in a very different way. And well, it's so, interesting because you're going to start your unbeknownst to your intention. You're starting with a negative. You're saying, hey, we're this negative thing you don't like. And we do good. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> right. that's Well, that's also true. Definitely. The other thing that we, and actually to your point, the another thing that we see a lot is that often people try and make a point. They're trying to build support for something by using a negative. And going back to the days of early rhetoric and, and Cicero, you tend to find that if you want to build engagement, if you want to expand your audience, you do it in positive terms. If you want to rally your existing audience or divide two audiences, then you use the negative. But but we have a tendency in in communications today, particularly if we're trying to persuade, mm-hmm. to to start with a negative frame. And and often what happens is instead of persuading people, all it does is kind of reinforce beliefs both among people who already agree with you and also among the people who disagree. Sure, it, it alienates the others. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. It just it it amplifies wherever people happen to to be. Exactly. I interviewed some academic researchers who dug into what sustains reader attention after they've clicked on articles. It was interesting because what goes viral and what people actually read doesn't overlap <laughs> that much. And what their research showed was that sustained engagement with a written piece has simple, concrete syntax, and that it more often features uncertainty, not absolute 
absolutes and emotionality and that the power of emotions was not equal. And in my reading of their study, what I saw as sort of a good shorthand for the hierarchy of emotional power was somewhat temporal. That is, future focus seemed to be the most compelling. Right now was next and the least engaging was the past. So anxiety and hope were more powerful than anger and happiness, which were in turn more powerful than sadness and contentment. They didn't study verbal communication, but does that feel consistent with your experience in terms of verbal communication? Well, let me comment first on the kind of the fluency and the syntax and the ease of understanding. I think whether it's whether it's verbal or it's written, there's no question in my mind that what we see is that simple language communicates even complex concepts more effectively than complex language. People will pay attention. People can understand it better. And so they they want to stick around. And so we talk about cognitive fluency and trying to make it very easy for people to understand, but not only to understand understand also to agree with what it is that you have to say, even if it's something controversial. So that, that oh, idea. Oh, that's interesting. And so if you understand it, then it's easier to agree to it. Because but also, yeah, I also want to make it easy to agree with. So if I'm going to, and this is going off your question for a second, but the, if I want to change your mind about something, the first thing that I have to do is find a point of agreement oh. to get you to open up your mind to be willing to listen to an alternative point of view. And so if we're going to talk about something that's controversial, if we have different views on climate, for example, mm -hmm. I'm going to find an area of agreement, right? So if conservatives, if you're a progressive and you're a conservative and you want to talk about climate, the best place to start on climate is to start on enjoying the outdoors and the park. Okay. Sort of the apple pie Yes. Please. And just like, how is it that I might be able to relate to you as a conservative where you appreciate the earth and the climate? And then I might move to something else. And, and where political debates go horribly wrong over and over again is that people tend to start all the way on the opposite end, like with the most controversial point <laughs> without finding a, a common right. context to talk about. Right. Uh, but going back to your your question about emotion, I think there are a couple of interesting things that we've seen in our research that I would point to. So first, the the fact that the past is the least engaging completely aligned with what we see. It's it's we have a tendency to really discount the past as being something that's important or really central for us. There's a certain amount of nostalgia, but nostalgia is usually effective as a means to an end as opposed to an end in and of itself. Right. As it relates to the difference between the present and the future, you know, it, it's interesting. I think you're talking about holding attention. You know, mm -hmm. often what we see is that there is a present tense bias. You know, oh, interesting. Again, okay. If I want people to pay attention, now maybe not, you know, and to sort of to get their attention, and I focus on something that's too big or too far away or too scary, then okay. I will actually dissuade them from engaging. So if I if I talk about, we do a lot of work on retirement. And the thing about talking to people about preparing for retirement is that if you try and tap too much into anxiety or too much into the long-term future, they can often either be paralyzed with fear or kind of not engage because it seems too far away. And that the thing that tends to work the best is a focus on empowering people in that case to feel like they can take an action that has a meaningful impact. And that's usually really present tense focused. That's fascinating. That is so interesting. What about the difference between 
uncertainty versus absolute. I am a, a big believer that that and there's a cultural component to this, but there's also a cognitive component, which is that we generally reject absolutes, that we live in a world where we know that nothing is perfect. We don't actually even dream about things that are perfect so much as we hope for things that are really good. And so when we talk in terms of absolutes, yes, I think in the in political debates, people would say I was say just going to say people work. are so absolute in mm. political debates. So maybe um, that's a sidebar. I think I think in some ways it is. And to the extent that it becomes really tribal, which is where the political debates really have shifted to, mm. it is often a binary discussion. Right. The point that I think is really important here is that we are often focused on the area of persuasion, which is of shifting mindsets. Okay. And in the area of shifting mindsets, you have a a naturally higher degree of skepticism about what is being communicated. Okay. So okay. In the political world, where again, you're 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 almost always preaching to the choir, their absolutes right. really resonate. In, well, there you're talking to your tribe. Exactly. As you, as you said. Exactly. So, okay. Okay. That's really interesting. You know, but if I'm trying to bring you over to my side and I declare to you that I am right, I'm going to fail. If I'm a company, oh, you know, and okay. I'm in a crisis situation and I'm trying to respond to a crisis, you know, my product has been accused of harming people. And I tell you our products are safe. You're going to reject what I have to say. You know, oh, if I if I provide a, a higher level of uncertainty, or if not uncertainty, I avoid trying to provide certainty. Then I'm going to be perceived as much more credible, and you are much more likely to listen to what it is that I have to say. Fascinating. We talk about the attention economy. Clients or consumers are constantly being bombarded with a lot of information. Great service, great products. How? can you cut through, especially if everyone knows you should focus on the client or focus on the consumer. So everybody's focused on them. So how do you, if it's all about them rather than us, and if everybody takes that advice, aren't we all going to be saying the same thing? Well, in a lot of cases, we do end up saying the same thing. And and so you've highlighted, you know, absolutely a challenge that marketers face if you focus too much on, on that emotional appeal that you're trying to make with your brand. I always used to point out that at, at one point, I'm not sure if they still do, but there were three of the major auto manufacturers, their taglines were find new roads, go further, and let's go places. And mm. while you could parse those as being kind of different tonalities and representing slightly different things, they were really kind of tapping into a very similar insight that they were trying to articulate. And I think for most consumers, the, the distinction was probably lost. And so it's just that we have cup holders that fit all sizes. Right, exactly. exactly. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that would be nice. <laughs> just anyway. uh -huh. or, or just a big gulp in the right. case of America, right? It's got to be that big. So what we often look for is there is there's what the consumer wants and what the consumer expects. And the the vein to really mine is how do you disrupt the expectation in order to give the consumer something that they want? Oh. I'll give you one example, and it's you know for a pretty mundane industry in in the insurance space where everybody was talking about about kind of the service that they were that they were going to provide they were they were talking about the coverage that they were going to give and even the mid-level players and we were working for a premium player chubb in this case and and what they what we found out is that what 
particularly higher income consumers expected from insurance companies was that when it really mattered, they were going to get nickel and dimed. That like mm. the, it wasn't the insurance company wasn't really going to step up. And and Chubb operated in a way that was very different from that. They really their experience was one where they they did not nickel and dime. And so the repositioning that we did with them was was to basically say we at Chubb, we look for ways to say yes. Okay. And yeah. so it was it was talking about service, it was talking about coverage, but it was getting at this expectation that this negative expectation that that customers had and flipping it into a positive. Interesting. So I'm going to pivot just a little bit. If strong communications help businesses weather storms and thrive in crowded marketplaces, mechanically block and tackle, what does a good communication team look like organizationally? And what does it look like in terms of channels, reaction times? I just, I just, if you're, if you have a department, what should it look like when you have a client and you're like, are they going to be staffed properly? What's good? Well, so I I actually, I think that I would zoom out a little bit on that question, which is organizationally, what does it look like? Where does communication sit in the hierarchy of things that are valued by an organization? And so, you know, th- there are there are kind of positive, proactive communications to build your brand and sell your product, and then there are the reputation, crisis preparedness, uh, issue advocacy uh, aspects of of communication as well. And that's often where the the tougher kind of questions are are both asked and answered. And you see in in different kinds of companies, you have leadership teams that where the the lawyers, the, the the general counsel, the CFO, and a CEO who does not kind of fundamentally understand or appreciate the value of communication are absolutely in charge. Um, and those yeah. companies tend to be un or underprepared for for any kind of reputational bumps in the road. Well, it's interesting. I was going to say sometimes, you know, attribution and marketing and ROI and marketing can be tricky. And I imagine corporate communications is even more difficult. So if you are making the case, you're selling in that this is important to value this. What do you say to that CFO, that CEO, those lawyers? How do you how do you sell them on the idea before things hit the fan? Yeah, well, it comes to talking to lawyers, and I'm a I'm now officially a retired lawyer. I, I was once a practicing lawyer, but the but you know, often the legal argument inside of a C-suite is really compelling. It is like, look, if you say this, we're going to get sued. Or right. if you say this the wrong way, there is going to be a problem. And mm-hmm. uh, the counter to that is that increasingly there are examples out there where if you don't say something, the Fifth Amendment is going to be treated as guilt. Or if you communicate in a way that is overly corporate or overly legalized, you get yourself into trouble. And we see lots of examples of CEOs or of companies trying to avoid saying anything and it backfiring on them. And so when we go into organizations and have those conversations, we talk about the fact that it is no longer optional to be an effective communicator, that particularly when companies face challenging times, which almost every company does now, if you don't have the ability to kind of understand your audience, to empathize with where they are and to effectively communicate your message, it's going to hurt your stock. It's going to hurt your, it's going to hurt your sales. And, and it's probably going to hurt your morale internally as well. 
Right. Do you think that all of the sort of lessons and tricks that apply to these external communications also would apply to internal communications? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, often the employees are the the area of kind of greatest challenge and greatest opportunity. That if if you can if you can effectively use communication to to communicate use communication internally and build credibility with with your employees internally, it will not only lead to I think better performance for the business, they also become your best advocates. Right. They're your brand ambassadors. Yeah. All but yeah, they you send them forth into the world. And, and they know the warts inside the business. And so establishing credibility with them is often harder than it is with customers. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Are there, would you say there are any, you know, here we are, everybody wants the magic, magic silver bullet. Are there any sort of magic phrases that people should use in in communications, not just, I mean, I guess, obviously it's just very specialized when you're dealing with something that went pear-shaped, but if you're just communicating, you know, let's say, let's take it to a sales meeting. Mm. Are there any magic phrases that put you in the right place, the right starting place? So, you know, this is going to sound terribly mundane, but it is incredibly important. And I think often underappreciated is, is language that that creates a personal connection with the audience. I, I often tell a story that it's it's one thing to listen to your audience, you know, a client, a customer. It's another thing to tell them that you're listening to them. If I get on a call with you and I say, look, I'd just like to spend a couple of minutes listening to what's on your mind and what matters to you. Not only am I now listening, but I'm telling you that I'm listening and I'm conveying this really important value. And, and that whether it's saying that I want to listen to you or acknowledging the importance of the conversation or what it is that putting the the audience at the center of the conversation, making it about them, that language is incredibly important in a sales context, in an internal communications context, really with almost any audience to try and do that. Well, and then you have to really do it. Yes, absolutely. Because I, I knew a sales guy and he came armed with his talking points and a bit like we've dabbled in mentioning politics, but a bit like when you go to those debates and the person shoehorns in their answer to any mm-hmm. question. These are the points I want to say. And he would do that. And he wasn't particularly successful, but fair enough. It's hard. How do you prepare if you're going to meeting where you're starting by listening? You haven't already had the listening com- or should you have a conversation where you listen before you have the meeting? How do you prepare properly? Well, I, I think it it depends on what it is that you're doing, but in most cases, you're listening for specific things. And so there are there are situations where we will talk about where listening is, you know, saying, look, here's what I thought would be a great agenda for this meeting. And we're going to cover, I thought we would cover these four things. But before we do that, is there anything that you want to make sure that we cover? Because mm-hmm. I want to, right? So now I've, I've communicated to you that what matters to you is really what's most important, but I'm also exerting a certain amount of control over the conversation. And and even if I'm listening and I'm actively listening and I'm asking fo- follow-up questions, assuming that this is not kind of day one in my job, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steer the conversation, not in a negative way, but I'm going to kind of move the conversation to information that's going to be helpful to a sales conversation. Okay. Authenticity. You mentioned it earlier mm. and it's it's what everything is all about these days. Are there some communication styles or words that reinforce trust and authenticity? I go back to mindset, which is the I think historically if you think about 
communicate communicators or executives who communicate there's been a sense that that fallibility is a real problem mm-hmm. right right that we have to be perfect we have to show that we are the masters of the universe and that the the fundamental mindset shift is that flaws are probably the most powerful tool in communication for building credibility and i believe that credibility is is the most powerful tool in communication so what i mean by that is that if i am able to communicate to you and this also gets back to your point about absolutes versus uncertainty if i am able to communicate to you or demonstrate to you that that i am self aware that i recognize that i am not perfect but that I'm really good in certain areas, you are much more likely to believe me and take my advice in those areas than if I made it sound like I know everything about everything. And right. so we're often coaching communicators, companies to, to not overstate you know, what they're good at or how good they are at it, because it's not a detriment to say that you can't do everything. It's actually a huge advantage to articulate that, build that credibility, so that the thing that you really want them to believe about you, they really do believe about you. That's really interesting, especially because so many people, you know, fake it, fake it, mm-hmm. you can fake it till you make it, but that might actually not work. And if we, not only with customers and clients, but internally, you know, yes. be, be fallible, be, be authentic. As we wrap up our conversation, what would you say is the single most important thing for someone to think about when framing their communications? I think the most important thing is to really understand what it is that you're trying to achieve. And then also, what does the audience think about that thing that you're trying to achieve? And what what I mean by that is that particularly in emotional situations or important situations for the communicator, we, we want to make ourselves feel good with our communication, which is often inconsistent with being effective. So, you know, I say that there are some messages that work and some messages that make you feel good. And they're usually not the same. That's interesting. Because I'm not talking to myself. I'm talking to you. And I have to understand if what I'm trying to do is persuade you of something, then I should be really ambivalent as to whether or not I like what I'm saying. You know, it should be true. Like, but it may not be my favorite way of saying it because I need it to be your favorite way of hearing it. So, okay. I'm going to give you a problem and you're going to give me an example. You got it. I have had an event and I had all these problems and gee whiz, what I really need is more staff. And I'm, I want to communicate that to my boss, but I don't want to seem like a whiner. Mm-hmm. How, what's the best way to position that? Well, so what matters to your boss? Does the, is it the event? Is it the, it's presumably not the, your boss does not really care about your, even a caring boss may not care about your, how many staff you have. Well, I think, yeah, the, the boss would care. Let's say the boss cares about the success of the event, but it's important for you to get that extra staff because it really is just impossible. Right. So. The framing that I would go to is, is in kind of, instinctively is to paint a picture of the event that the boss wants. Let's say it's a future event and you know you need more staff for it. Or if you, if it didn't work in the past event, but you know, you need the, the the future event to be more successful, I would say, look, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how to make the most effective events that we can. And there are areas that I've increasingly learned are really important for us to do well. I might 
kind of even get feedback. Do you agree that things like making sure that the marketing is really strong and making sure that every touch point that we have with the people who are interested in coming to the event is really polished and professional and that from the moment that they walk in the door until the end of it, that we have planned all of those things out. And I think that if we did that, the, the event would be really spectacular. And hopefully you get a nod. You now kind of found that common area of agreement Mm -hmm. that, and now your boss is bought in a little bit more. And then say, and, and I've been thinking about how do I make sure that with the resources that I have available to me, that I can achieve that goal. And, and what I'd like to talk to you about is just making sure, because I'm, I'm concerned that I can do a lot of these things well, or I can do all of these things. Okay. With this staff, but in order to achieve this goal of the perfect event, it would really be helpful to have more staff. Right. So you're, you're framing it like this is this thing the boss wants. So you're really, again, it's putting that person at the center. Mm -hmm. You're thinking you're not telling your story, your issues, your desires, you're sharing theirs, and then you're getting them to this common ground. And then you're providing the solution, which is what you want. Right. Thank you so much. I could talk to you forever. I I wish I could have you in my back pocket when I'm having conversations (laughs) that are difficult. Well, I really appreciate that. It's been a great conversation. I love the questions and it's been super fun. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.